In our first episode on Troilus and Cressida, we said that Shakespeare's play is a form of war waged against the literary tradition of Troy. James Simpson, Donald P. and Catherine B. Loker Professor of English at Harvard University, guides us through that tradition and Shakespeare's response to it to help us understand what he is doing and why in this uniquely corrosive play. I came to this play as a scholar especially of late medieval literature with a special interest in, precisely, Trojan materials. Without knowing these texts, it's really difficult to see what exactly Shakespeare is up to in Troilus and Cressida. Scholars, they don't, in my view, understand just how aggressive the tone is since they don't know the late medieval materials. Because Shakespeare's Troilus and Cressida is hostile not only to militarism, to a a rather debased form of militarism, but it's also hostile to entire literary tradition about Troy. Modern readers might be most familiar with the Troy story from Homer's Iliad, but medieval and early modern readers would have had access to this story from a wide variety of sources. The Trojan War never goes away, ever. And it dominates late medieval and early modern European imagining. It's a big tradition. Trojan materials are really vast and they fall into at least five separate major traditions. Those five major traditions would be Homer's Iliad from the 8th century before the Common Era. Number two, Virgil's Aeneid, just before the end of the 1st century BCE. Then a big jump in the 1160s, Benoit de Saint-Maur writes the Roman de Troyes, And that work in French poetry is translated into Latin prose by Juan Guido delle Colonne. In 1287, it's Guido who is by far the dominant presence in the presentation of the Trojan War for the later medieval period and the early modern period. Once we have those three traditions, Homer, Virgil and Guido, then we have offshoots of the Guido tradition. The most exemplary instance is Boccaccio's Philostrato, written in Italian in the 1340s. And then we have uh, a fifth category, Chaucer's Troilus and Crusade, which was written in the middle of the 1380s. And we have Lydgate's Troy book, finished in 1420, and then we have Henryson's Testament of Crescent. So in sum, five available traditions. Which of those traditions were available to Shakespeare and his audience? All of them. What we have is really a pretty complete set of the entire range of Troy materials from antiquity through to the 16th century, all available, 
all being fed into Troilus and Cressida. Of course, not all of these traditions represented the Troy story in the same way. Homer's Iliad is presented mainly from the Greek point of view and is set during the last year of the Trojan War, focusing particularly on Achilles and his killing of Hector. Virgil's Aeneid, told from the Trojan point of view, follows the Trojan prince Aeneas after the war on his journey to found Rome and includes his narration of how the Greeks deployed the Trojan horse to defeat Troy. These stories focus, in more or less glorified ways, on the war. Other versions, like Chaucer's, focus more on the experience of love amidst war, though they differ on how they represent women. To put it simply, Homer and Virgil both offer models of epic heroism. It is true that Epic as a genre is never triumphalist. Intelligent epic is always underwritten by melancholy and loss. But nonetheless, both those texts, put simply and bluntly, represent models of epic heroism, despite their melancholy. But the late medieval Guido tradition, its larger theme is anti-imperialist, it is consistently critical of moronic militarists. What we see is young, swaggering militarists promoting the conduct, the continuation of dumb wars. This is a vast tradition about the stupidity of going to war. Chaucer, by contrast, is focused on the experience of love and fidelity in a context of warfare. When Crusade, through no willingness on her part, must go into the Greek camp, then she has to decide whether or not to remain faithful to Troilus. She doesn't remain faithful. So ostensibly, this is a story of female betrayal. That's what it was in Boccaccio's story. In the Philostrato, we have just the love story. And Boccaccio writes this text with a pretty clear intent. And the intent is Guido's intent whenever he writes about women. And that is to demonstrate just how treacherous women are. But in Chaucer's story, no. Chaucer at the end says, I'm telling this story not to show men how unfaithful women are, but rather I'm, t I'm pointing out the dangers for women for trusting men. The Trojan War is all about Raptus, Paris abducting Helen. It's all about male betrayal of women. So these are the traditions, to sum up, that Shakespeare was receiving, Shakespeare was putting together in uh, Troilus and Cressida. Having some familiarity with these traditions allows us to perceive just how thoroughly Shakespeare ironises them, as in his treatment, for example, of Homer's great warrior Achilles. 
lots of historical irony, literary irony, for readers of these traditions. Homer's Achilles is savage, he's dark, he's difficult to handle. We all know Achilleses in our life and they have to be treated with great care. But one way or another, we might respect them. Shakespeare doesn't respect Achilles. How is Hector killed in Troitus and Cressida? Not in the awe-inspiring way we see in Book 22 of Homer's Iliad. No, Hector is murdered. Achilles, his Myrmidons murder him, which is straight from the Guido tradition. We can sum up our view, this play's view of Achilles by a comment of Thersites, who calls Achilles the idol of idiot worshippers. The Trojan side is represented sympathetically in Virgil's Aeneid, but the Trojans don't fare any better in Shakespeare's play than Homer's Greeks. Both sides are crushed. Both sides face the withering, mordant aggression of Shakespeare. Greek or Trojan, it makes no difference. Both are characterised by idiotic, male, rivalrist, militarist fools who conduct war stupidly and destructively and who treat women terribly. Both sides are equally uh, culpable and both sides are met with Shakespeare uh, really unremitting aggression. It is true that this aggression is built into the main late medieval Troy tradition, the Guido tradition. But he's going one step further. He's trashing these societies more consistently and aggressively than Guido does. I, I don't think there is any sympathy for one side or another. Shakespeare undermines literary traditions focused on warfare and ones focused on love. And he does this partly by showing how closely connected love and warfare are. One often turns out to be a cover for the other, which casts suspicion on both. The play's first lines remind us of the war's cause. Helen, Menelaus's queen, with wanton Paris sleeps, and that's the quarrel. Sexual possessiveness drives military action, and male rivalry is often the origin of love. Eve Kozovsky Sedgwick ran this wonderful persuasive argument that a lot of material which we regard as being about heterosexual love is really about homosocial love. And I think that uh, thesis is strikingly pertinent. I would argue from Kozovsky Sedgwick's argument that Troilus and Cressida is a play about men. It's all about rivalry. That's the only thing that counts. When Hector issues a challenge to the Greeks, he frames it partly as a contest over women. If there be one that loves his mistress more than in confession and dare avow her worth in other arms than hers, to him this challenge. 
The pun on arms collapses a lover's embrace and the weapons of war into one word. Ulysses makes a similar pun when he urges Achilles to rejoin the war. Achilles says he cannot fight because he is pledged to the Trojan princess Polyxena. Ulysses replies, Better would it fit Achilles much to throw down Hector than Polyxena. Throw down here means both to bed a lover and to defeat an enemy. When Troilus cannot do one, he tries to do the other. When Diomedes comes to take Cressida to the Greeks, Troilus tells him, I charge thee, use her well, even for my charge. Treat her well, he's saying, because I told you to. Diomedes perceives Troilus's attempt at dominance and defies it. I'll nothing do on charge. To her own worth she shall be prized, but that you say, be it so, I'll speak it in my spirit and honour, no. He won't do anything because Troilus tells him to. In fact, he's more inclined to abuse Cressida simply because Troilus told him not to. As Cressida departs, Troilus focuses less on her than on this rival she has inadvertently introduced. When Cressida becomes Diomedes' lover, Troilus's love for her translates exactly into this rivalry. As much as I do Cressid love, so much by weight hate I her Diomede, he says, and shows a new kind of fury against the Greeks in the next battle. Love and war can hardly be distinguished in this play. What looks like military valour is often an expression of sexual possessiveness, and what looks like love becomes an arena for military rivalry between men. Nothing is what it seems on the surface. In one battle, Hector shows an unexpected vanity and kills a soldier for his beautiful armour. Most putrefied core so fair without thy goodly armour thus has cost thy life, he tells the corpse. This armoured soldier symbolises the play's corrosive treatment of its heroic characters and themes, fair without and rotten within. Perhaps it is not surprising that Shakespeare would undermine the military ethos of the play's male characters. In plays like Coriolanus and Henry IV, he shows the limitations of a purely combative martial mindset. What is surprising, particularly to modern audiences, is that the play works just as hard to undermine its female characters, especially compared to Chaucer's poem. Shakespeare often grants intimate access to characters' thoughts and feelings through their soliloquies. Chaucer lets his readers see Cressida's complex inner life, but Shakespeare does not. Book two of Chaucer's Troilus and Crusade. We see Crusade looking out the window and seeing Troilus. She kind of falls in love. And then we see her alone, where she has an internal debate. We hear what's going on inside her. It's a very intimate scene. Should I take a royal lover? She goes to bed and there is a nightingale singing outside. She dreams and in her dream, a white eagle violently 
but painlessly tears out her heart and replaces his heart for hers. This is a very intimate, complex account of both falling in love and deciding, despite the dangers, that you might take a lover. It's very psychologically profound. How much of that survives in Troilus and Cressida? Answer, zero. Nothing. We never get intimate with Crusade's inner thoughts. Shakespeare's play gives Cressida only two short soliloquies, neither of which fully explain why she makes key decisions about Troilus. Because the play keeps us distant from her, it's easier for us to reduce Cressida as she reduces herself. When she and Troilus pledge their love, she says that if she breaks her faith, let them say to stick the heart of falsehood as false as Cressid. Chaucer's crusade says, every poem is going to say bad things about me and women will hate me most of all. But in Chaucer's poem, we as readers question that. We say, well, we don't hate you. We feel very sympathetic to you, even if you have betrayed Troilus. By contrast, in Shakespeare's Troilus and Cressida, Cressida is faithless Cressida. Since the 1980s, directors and actors have found ways within Shakespeare's play to resist this reading of Cressida as the symbol of the faithless woman. In some productions, when Cressida arrives in the Greek camp, men who are prepared for military violence divert that energy into sexual violence. The Greeks surround, push, grab and forcefully kiss a vulnerable Cressida. Theatre critic Lynn Gardner, reviewing Andrew Hilton's 2003 staging, wrote that the scene falls far short of a gangbang, but it feels as if you are watching one. A woman in a war camp might face the threat of sexual assault by multiple men unless she could secure the protection of one man, which would come at its own cost. In Cressida's exchange with Diomedes, Troilus only sees her falsehood. But for her, Diomedes might represent, in critic Ross Asquith's words, a choice between rapist or protector. Her choice to leave Troilus is hardly a choice at all. This take on Cressida, which lets us see how she is victimised and constrained, defends her from the charge of betrayal and whoredom, a charge that has been with her since Guido wrote in the Middle Ages. But this perception of Cressida wasn't available only in the feminist-era 20th century. It was fully available to Shakespeare from Chaucer's poem. He chose to disregard it. Guido's intent is to demonstrate just how treacherous women are. The play does nothing to resist that representation of Cressida. Chaucer does everything he possibly can. We feel a kind of intimacy with her, a sympathy for her, a feeling that she's been betrayed by the Trojan parliament. We feel a kind of sympathy for her, even if she does indeed 
betray Troilus. But in Shakespeare's play, it's all very different. She caves into Diomede's overtures immediately. The representation of Crusade's relationship with Diomede shows no resistance. Many modern readers think of Shakespeare as distinct for his humanity, his massive extension of sympathy to all his characters. In plays like The Merchant of Venice and Othello, Shakespeare develops characters' complexity beyond what appeared in the source texts and deepens our empathy with ordinarily villainized figures. And so it is all the more striking that in Troilus and Cressida, Shakespeare goes the opposite way. He discards the most sympathetic elements in his source and treats Cressida as reductively as he treats Achilles, Hector and the Troy myth. The question then is why he does this. Why would this usually sympathetic author, so open to new points of view, close down his sympathies here? One thing to consider is that this play is a new point of view for Shakespeare. This unusual play is an experiment by an experimental author, though critics haven't always understood what kind of experiment it is. The scholarship has always been confused about genre. Is it a comedy? Most definitely not. Is it a tragedy? Definitely not. They just didn't have a category because they didn't think of Shakespeare as a, a satirist. But there is definitely one satire in the Shakespearean oeuvre. The first folio titled the play The Tragedy of Troilus and Cressida, but earlier publications called it The History of Troilus and Cressida, while also describing the play as a comedy. There are elements of all three genres in the play, but it is dominated by satire. Satiric drama, which made humorous, biting cultural critiques, was popular with contemporary dramatists like Ben Jonson. Shakespeare usually avoided satire, but in Troilus and Cressida, he shows that he too could deploy this sharp-edged genre, perhaps even more viciously than any of his contemporaries, in order to take down one of the most monumental literary traditions of his culture. Satire, it's about destructive types being critiqued from a single point of view. It's not about inner conflict of characters. Satire is not richly, multiply nuanced and self-divided. It targets, it simplifies, it bites and this satire bites very hard indeed. He's drawing his fundamental line from the critical Guido tradition, but he's exaggerating that tradition so much that he ends up being hostile to that tradition itself. The decidedly un-Shakespearean quality of Troilus and Cressida is that its own dramatic and literary practice is also unremittingly rivalrous, bristling. This play is unusual for satire as well, insofar as it doesn't offer correctives. Ben Jonson offers correctives. And also Jonson says that the play is going to make you feel better. 
because you will have laughed. Troilus and Cressida offers no corrective and it doesn't make you feel better. On the contrary, we are threatened with infection of the basest kind by the epilogue. So no corrective enterprise and no feeling better. We feel worse. Explaining what the play is, though, might not tell us why Shakespeare wrote it. Why deliberately shrink your perspective in this way? Why strive for reduced sympathy? Perhaps there are some things we shouldn't sympathise with. As some characters occasionally attempt to remind each other, the Trojan War has cost many lives, and not really for a good reason. When Patroclus mocks Menelaus for losing his wife to Paris, Ulysses says bitterly, O deadly gall and theme of all our scorns, for which we lose our heads to gild his horns. People are dying, that is, to cover up the shame one man feels when sexually bested by another man. And that's the quarrel. This legendary war is not, of course, the only one in human history to cost more lives than the cause justified. And it's at such moments, Professor Simpson argues, that we need satire. It seems to me that a play like this is the sort of thing that's necessary when we are faced with corrupt, idiotic rulers who are treated like idols by idiots. It's a text that did lie dormant for centuries until the voice of unremitting distrust of military and militarist stupidity becomes necessary. So post-World War I, 1968, 2012, it's a play that is not meant to be loved. It's a play that gives relief from idiots who are running destructive wars. What you need in such a political situation, what you need after World War I, what you need in the Vietnam War, what you need after the idiotic, in my view, invasion, a 2003 invasion of Iraq, what you need is to express spleen. You don't want a sympathetic account of there are two sides to this question. You don't want to feel sympathetic engagement with a character trying to come to terms with a complex situation. No, you want someone who can make you laugh and give vent to your spleen. Spleen is the source both of laughter and of melancholy. That's what this play does. It gives vent to spleen. In our next episode, we'll hear three speeches that articulate this play's destructive mood, including the astonishing final lines that threaten to inflict that destructiveness on the audience. 